It's always an honor to get to preach in front of my church um, that I love very dearly. Uh, especially a privilege to get to preach in front of my favorite cousin, my best buddies, my dad, and many of other our family, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law. It's wonderful to be able to preach God's word anyway. I think I could preach to a brick wall if I needed to. But as you know, we're going through a summer in Psalms, and uh, as me and Brother Kelby discussed um, which psalm I would go to uh, for preaching this week. I had a few in mind, but there was one that kind of just stuck in my heart and stuck in my mind, and I knew that we needed to go there. Uh, psalm 100. Uh, growing up, um, I know my dad remembers this, my cousin Sandy may remember this. In our hallway of our house, we had a picture. And on that picture was written Psalm 100, or as my mama would call it, the 100th Psalm. And on that picture, make a joyful noise was in this beautiful script. I could see it. I can see that picture so clearly in my head. I love that picture. And this psalm has had a particular place in my heart because of that. Um. Kelby and I have had some kind of general conversations about uh, worship as a whole uh, recently. Um, we had a we both read a very uh, well written article, very good article about the idea of worship, and particularly we've talked about the singing portion of our service. Um, one of the things for me personally, and I think also for Kelby, based on our our conversations with each other, is how much we loved hearing the voices raised in song as we sing songs to the Lord. Um, and I believe that our prayer for our church is that adoration of God would take root in our hearts just as much as it does in our minds. My background in church is uh, a little bit of a different standpoint. Uh, Worship wasn't the whole service. Worship was just the singing part. We had worship, and then we had preaching. Now, we believe here, differently than that, we believe that from start to finish, actually, I would, I would say we believe that from 945, when we have classes studying the Word of God for our kids and for our adults, up until we leave this building, that's our worship service. And... We go, I've gone from an emotionally driven extreme to a very, and, and a very self-focused extreme about how the music made me feel to a big change. About four years ago, I had a big change in my life. And many of you know that change, and my theology changed, and I, I became more grounded in the Word and in the Scriptures. But here's the problem. I'm going to talk about two ditches Junior, because we need to, right? I've gone from the, the emotional extreme to those who go the opposite way. Who would just as, as well take all emotion out of worship, be stoic and unmoved during every part of a service, 
and mainly because we know a lot about God. That is also a problem. You see, what we must see is that an encounter with our king through prayer, through singing, through his word, may and honestly should cause an emotional reaction within his children. In order, mind you, we know that we do all things in order in his house, right? Not chaotic, but something deeper than just a head knowledge. Now, getting to the context of this particular psalm, Psalm 100 is a culmination psalm of eight psalms that are all focused on one thing, celebrating the Lord Yahweh, his Lord, the Lord's kingship over all creation. And it is a call of true worship to our King. Now here, the infallible, inspired Word of God, Psalm 100, verses 1 through 5. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. I pray that we would all see the imperatives in this text, the reason it was written, and how it applies to our lives. But most of all, May we see Christ in this text. So, in breaking this text down, I want us to take six key imperatives. Now, an imperative is a command. If you remember imperative sentences, they don't have a subject most of the time. They're like, do this, right? Go there. Act like this, right? These are imperatives. These are commands that are given within this psalm, and they will help to guide us to our main point of this psalm. The theme of this text, or uh, Brother Kelby would say, sermon in a sentence, is that as God's children, we're called to worship the God who has made the way to save us as our King with joy and thankfulness. Now let's look at those six imperatives. First one's very easy. It's the beginning. Make a joyful noise. Now, we've all heard that joke, right? For somebody who can't sing, to sing in church, we said, well, they're making a joyful noise, right? We've all heard that. Now, I want us to go past that a little bit here. I want us to talk about what a joyful noise is in the context and the setting of God's people in God's house. Because in the setting of God's people in God's house, I can think of a few different kind of joyful noises. Firstly, singing. Absolutely, it's a joyful noise. It's maybe one of our most joyful noises we make, right? Because it's in a, in, accompanied by music. 
lovely words, lovely songs, sang out by beautiful voices. The second joyful noise would be this, praying. We pray aloud here. We pray silently here. We pray corporately. We pray individually, right? Thirdly, the reading of Scripture. Brother Mark came up here and uh, read this psalm as a pretext to what we're preaching this morning. And that was a joyful noise for us to hear. Next, we hear confessing things together. Like when we sing our doxology together, that's a confession together. We're all confessing that same thing. If we would say a, 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 a confession or uh, our kids do uh, uh, different catechisms and things like that, that's confession. That's a loud confession. And because of that, that is a joyful noise made to the Lord. The next joyful noise is happening right now. I'm preaching and teaching the Word of God. That is a joyful noise to the Lord. And I want to add another one. Talking and laughing together with the people of God in fellowship. I believe God really enjoys that noise that happens before and after our services. I think He adores the fact that His children fellowship together in love. Now, what do these things have in common? What ties all these things together? Well, it's very simple. They are all worship of the one true God. All of those things are worship. The, the first verse makes it clear, I think, who the audience of worship is. You know, many times, I think when we hear song sung and we hear different things happening in a church service, sometimes we feel like we're the audience because we're sitting looking at a stage, right? We think we're the audience of worship, but we are not the audience of worship. Far from it. We are the worshipers. The audience of our worship is the Lord. It says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And this is the triune God of the Bible, the one true God, the true and living God, the creator of all the universe. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, existing in all times, co-equal. And I think the psalm also makes clear who should worship God. All the earth. Now this encompasses not just those who are in Christ and His elect. This is every piece and parcel of creation owes worship. To the one true God, the Creator. And He is worthy of all the glory. He alone is worthy of all the glory. As we believe, um, soli Deo Gloria. It's a Latin phrase, very simply means all glory to God alone. And this is proof of his kingship over all things. Now, the next imperative is a good one. It says, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Now, I'm going to get a little Puritan here because I love the Puritans and I believe a lot of the things they believe. 
I believe that we are called to serve the Lord in every piece, parcel, and moment of our lives, all of our lives, to the glory of God, every part. We're called to serve Him in our homes. We're called to serve Him in our church. We're called to serve Him in our work. And we are called to serve Him in our communities. Why? Why should we serve the Lord? Some would say, for salvation. I tell you, no, 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 no. Not for salvation. We do not serve the Lord for our own salvation. To paraphrase a Votie Bauckham quote, the gospel, now this may be controversial, you ready? The gospel does not require obedience. The gospel produces obedience. If it required obedience to work, the person and work of Jesus Christ was for nothing. You see, we are saved not by our own obedience to anything. We are saved by Christ's obedience on the cross. And to say that my salvation depends on my obedience to Him is to say, I'm as important as Christ was in my own salvation. And that's not true. Yet, don't forget, being in Christ will spark service in our hearts. But we're not just called to serve. There are many who serve, and there's times that I've, that I've served that it would have been better for me not to be serving. Because it says, serve the Lord with gladness. And there's times that I've served, and I was the opposite of glad. I love what Thomas Watson says. He's my favorite Puritan. He says, it is a sign the oil of grace has been poured into the heart when the oil of gladness shines on the countenance. Cheerfulness credits Religion. What he's saying is it's a perfect sign that the grace of God is at work in your life when on your face you see the joy of the Lord in service. So we must serve God cheerfully because he has done so much for us. Do you know what the scriptures say? The scriptures say that it pleased him to crush his son for us. He served us so well in saving us through Jesus Christ on the cross, He's worthy of our service. Loving service is a grateful response to the grace of God. And our desire to serve comes from the joy that we have in knowing Christ and that God has given us such mercy through His grace. The next imperative we'll look at is this. Come into His presence. Come into His presence. Now, God's elect, God's chosen people, those who are in Christ, we come into His presence in a very particular way that no other people can. We come and we gather as a church to lift up worship to our God with fellow believers. We meet and fellowship with His people. 
And it's very particular about how it says that we do that here as well. How do we come in? It says, come into his presence with singing. We lift up our voices in song. In our church, we sing theologically sound songs about the one true God. True songs about the true God. But here's the thing. We definitely don't put all the focus on the song service, as happens in some churches, that, that put all the focus on song service, and then we get a little preaching, right? We don't do that here. But, mind you, we also do not neglect it. It is in its place in our service as part of our good worship to our holy God. Now, I like the fourth imperative because I like to study. But, I think we can all take something very great from this next imperative, and that is, know that the Lord, He is God. Now, here's the thing. We serve one God, the God of the Bible, the one true God. He is the Lord, and there is no other. No other stands with Him against Him. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 says, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. He is the only God, no one like him, none even close. And this God is a sovereign God. Listen to Psalm 115, 1 through 3. This was actually on my short list. Psalm 115 was on my short list. Psalm 101. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. This is His world. This is His creation. He does as He pleases. He is sovereign over us. The rest of the verse tells us how we should feel about the fact that we can know this God and make Him Lord. It says, It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Listen very closely to these phrases. He made us. God is our creator. We are his. If we are in Christ, we are his. And I love what it says. It actually almost sounds like it's being redundant, being repetitive, but it's not. It says, we are his people. How many of you in life, you have your people that you hang out with, that you know, that you love, that you care about, your family, your friends, you have your people, right? God said, it says, we are His people. He desires to be in fellowship with us. And then it says, the sheep of His pasture. He is our shepherd. And we are His sheep. 
And Christ was clear on this. And months ago, we preached this, right, in John 10. John 10, 24 through 30, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But do not believe because you are among my sh- are not among my sheep. He says, notice, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here it is. You ready? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Thank you, Lord, for assurance. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. His sheep follow and worship him, and they will not listen to another. And here's the thing. If we're honest about who who God is and who Jesus is as our shepherd, we got to say one thing with pure honesty. I am completely dependent upon my shepherd for all things in my life. The Bible gives the, gives the uh, illustration that if, if, if creation was let go of, it would basically fall apart. He holds all things together. All of creation, he holds it together. Without Christ, we have nothing. Now, to know him as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, that's how we know who God is. He tells us who he is in Scripture. To know him as he has revealed himself in Scripture is really the only way for us to be able to give him true worship. We've got to worship the God of the Bible. We can't worship another God who does other things. Now, this was my mom's favorite part. Enter his gates and his courts. Now, there are a few ways to enter in. And it's not like what you hear on TV and uh, from, from some preachers who say, let's enter in, and it consists of all of these different things and these different methods. You've got to do this. You've got to do it this way. You've got to follow these steps. You've got to look like this. You've got to act like this in order to enter in. That's not how it works. God is clear about how his children should enter in. There are a few specific ways that we can enter into his gates and courts. Through prayer, through family worship together with your family at home, through Bible reading, and through church. In these disciplines, we enter in to meet with God. Not in some weird, new-agey spiritual sense. This is the real scriptural sense of how to enter into his courts. How to meet with God through the things that he has described as the way to meet him. So how should we approach these things? These different things that we do to enter into his presence? Simply with thanksgiving and praise. That's how we enter in. That's the method we use. And what a joy to know our God. He is the one who has made the way to save us. I like what Spurgeon says. He says, He is God alone, 
to know Him in that character and prove knowledge by obedience, trust, submission, zeal, and love is an attainment which only grace can bestow. We have an attachment to God through this relationship that we develop with Him in these disciplines and in this love that we have for Him and we share for Him. Here's the thing, church. We get to know Him. We get to know this God of all the universe. We get to have fellowship with Him. And we should be thankful to Christ and His work, which has been able to bring us in to this relationship with our holy God. If you look at other religions, they don't get to know their God. A lot of times their God is hidden. you got to find these different things, find nirvana or all these different things to figure out who He is. Our God says, here I am, this is me. You have my word, you can know me. And we get to have fellowship with that God. Now the sixth imperative, I think, is the key imperative of the entire song. And it's this. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. This is the key imperative of the song. God is ever deserving of our thanks. We are able to live and to bring glory to His name. And that should be our life's purpose. A life lived to the glory of God, I believe, is a life well lived. Now, let me give you the reason why that's true. Verse 5, it says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. That's why. We say it often, it seems like a cliche, we even sing a song called this, and it says it as the chorus, God is good. Absolutely true, God is good. But we, I think, underestimate the gravity of this statement. You see, God is good. Nothing is good without God's sovereignty and holiness. There is no such thing as good without God. Everything God ordains to be, by definition, is good. He will not act contrary to that character. And because He is good, He hates evil, sin and must punish it in order to be a just God. But this God, listen, this may be one of the most important things I tell you today. This God, who is good, before the foundation of the world, made a covenant. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternal co-equal, made the covenant of redemption. That man would have a way and a hope through the substitutionary atonement of God the Son. He took upon Himself all of our sin. He bore the full weight of our sin and the wrath of God on the cross. 
And He did it all to save us. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says, And this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, we look at the gospel here in four parts. God, man, Christ, response. God created all things. We've been talking about this creator God who created all things. He created the earth, all the beautiful trees and fruits and, and animals, and he made man. And he set man in the garden. He said, you can eat of any tree that you want except one. Don't eat of that tree because in the day you do, you will die. Right? So, man being man, he ate of the tree. Now, I want you to understand, this isn't just, isn't just picking a fruit off a wrong tree and biting it and, and causing some issues. This was a cosmic treason against a loving God who created all things for his people and said, don't do one thing. And now, because of that fall, we are all born in sin. We live in it. Scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people have no hope, right? They're done. They're dead. So if we trust what the Scripture says about these things, we know that we are in trouble on our own. Dead people don't do nothing but be dead. But before the foundation of the world, the covenant of redemption was made. And a baby was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was betrayed by a kiss, taken by the church leaders of the time, went before Pilate and suffered shame. They chose Barabbas over him. He was beaten. He carried his cross some of the way up the hill, but then had some help. He was taken to the cross of Golgotha. Nails were placed through his hands and his feet. And he was raised up, the sinless, spotless lamb. And one of the first things he said was, Forgive them, Lord, for they don't know what they're doing. He bore our sin, he bore our shame upon that cross. He took the wrath from God for that sin. He drank it to the dregs. And then he said, it is finished. And he died. He was placed in a grave and three days later, 
He rose alive bodily, proving that his sacrifice was good enough to satisfy the, the payment for our sins. So now, man goes from being in great trouble to having the greatest hope ever. And that hope is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Who, as Arlie Ray describes it, can take out your old heart and give you a brand new one. What is your response to that gospel? Your response is this. I repent and I trust in Christ for my salvation. The heart of stone removed, a heart of flesh replaced. The man who is dead in the grave is now alive in Christ alone. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that's not of works, lest any man should boast. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That is why we worship. That is why we lift up his name. That is why we give glory to him alone. That's why. So, in application, I would say this. I think my application may be one of the easiest applications I've ever given you. It doesn't have several points. It's pretty simple. Worship this God. Turn wholly to Him. Serve Him joyfully. Live a life of giving glory to this God. He has done the great work to save us. Let us worship Him in every way with joy and with thanks. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for all that you have done for us, for your love and your mercy to us, for the kindness that you have shown us. That God, above all, that we can lean on Christ, knowing that his work was good enough to accomplish what is necessary to save us. Help us to never, ever turn from that. Father, I pray for us who are in Christ, that this message would exhort us to even more worship of our God, to loving Him and desiring Him more than anything. God, I pray that for those who are not in Christ, that this will be the rock in their shoe, that they will not be able to sleep at night thinking about this gospel, that Jesus Christ died for their sins. Sinner, you must repent and turn to Christ. He is your only hope. Father, do a work in hearts. Take out hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh. We give you honor and praise this morning above all things. God, we thank you for everything that you've done for us. And God, we know that without you, we have nothing. In Christ's name we pray.